0: Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. All right, um, so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. I want to start by reviewing where we have been because... It's really important you don't take these texts out of their context because you can do so much damage with them. And particularly around the area of lust, there's been so much misunderstanding and so much shaming um, that has gone on with these texts that I just have to set the whole narrative stage uh, uh, for these comments of Jesus. So first, um, we started, we're doing a series of conversations on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and that really starts with the announcement that Jesus makes in chapter 4, verse 17, which is, hey, the kingdom of heaven is drawing near. Reconsider your entire way of living in response. And the kingdom of heaven, as we know, isn't something we do in our hearts. It's, it's a, a, a social reality that is embodied and manifested in a community that lives under the gracious reign of the King Jesus. Jesus. And so Jesus gathers a community, and he forms them and shapes them, and he proclaims the kingdom to them in two different ways. First, through his words, and that's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. What Jesus is talking about in the series of texts we're looking at is what does it mean that the kingdom of heaven has come near? But then he also proclaims his kingdom through the healings of Matthew 8 and 9, where you see him healing and casting out demons, doing all sorts of things, and, and in both respects, the kingdom is announcing its presence. From there, Jesus then um, notices the great crowds that have gathered around him. And these crowds, we're told at the end of chapter 4, are made up of people who are demon-possessed, who are having seizures, commoners, day-laborers, sinners, people of the land, just ordinary common folk, not religious elite. He sees these great crowds, and then he proceeds to have his disciples, and he speaks to his disciples so that all the crowd can overhear. And it begins with a a series of sayings called the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and so on. And as we looked at several weeks ago, these are not virtue statements of things we've got to try to become in order to be blessed. These all have antecedents in the Old Testament, and Jesus was referring to all of these people in Old Testament Israel who were hungry for the new thing that God was going to do, and saying to them, now, in my midst, exactly and please don't feel like you got to go anywhere. We love baby sounds. Um, uh, now in my midst, you, all of these great promises and pictures are being fulfilled. And then he invites this ragtag group of people to become salt and light. And these are not metaphors for individual evangelism, but rather how they're to operate as a community. In The salt metaphor is about inviting Israel to be Israel again, and the light metaphor is about inviting the world to see the beauty and the goodness of Jesus as Messiah. And so he gives this ragtag, you know, very weak, non-beautiful group of people permission in their weakness to witness and testify to the kingdom that has come in their midst. Are you with me so far? All right. Four. Love it. We'll, We'll try to pick up more along the way. Now... Jesus then says, because he's anticipating an accusation, that he's come to set aside Torah, or to abolish it, but no, he insists, he's come to fulfill it, which means he's come to actually show what the true interpretation of Torah is. Jesus is Torah with clothes on. He's the heart of God towards humanity. Um, And he's the visible demonstration of what looks like to be fully human as one lives under the gracious reign of Yahweh now people are invited to live under the gracious reign of the Lord Jesus and Remember he says the law and the prophets aren't going anywhere. He's come to show their true nature And then he contrasts what he's doing with what the scribes and the Pharisees have been doing in, in verse 20 of that same chapter says for i tell you that unless your righteousness and righteousness here doesn't mean your moral purity righteousness means social justice it means uh, the, the shalom of a community together the way the pharisees were defining righteousness was too thin it was too hollow it was too shallow and so he says unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and pharisees you will not enter the kingdom of heaven one of the things that's staggering about that is the scribes and Pharisees were known famously for their incredible righteousness. So Jesus then spends the rest of the sermon offering two critiques of the way the Pharisees understood this. This is all review, by the way. If you're bored, you can get a feel for how boring the rest is going to be. But um, <laughs> it's so important to understand the context because what Jesus is going to do is going to offer two critiques. The first critique is that the Pharisees had a thin view of righteousness because it only concerned itself with what happens outside. And so Jesus is going to offer six illustrations. We looked at the first one of anger last week, where he takes a heavy command, do not murder, and equates it with a light command, do not hold anger or contempt in your heart. And says, listen, it's not righteous enough just to go around not murdering, right? True righteousness is when you deal with anger and contempt inside you. Six times he does this, and these are illustrations to make this big critique of the Pharisees. And then the second critique is in chapter 6, when Jesus talks about their hypocrisy in performing uh, acts of righteousness in order to be seen and approved of by people. Obviously, we never do that, so it won't be relevant to us, but we'll look at it anyway. All right, are you with me so far? All right, now we get to Matthew 5, verse 27. So, because of this text, we have knives at the stations around the room um, for our time after. No, 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 no. Now, this is a text um, that has been misused and misunderstood um, for for ages and ages and ages. So, we're going to go really carefully through it. Remember, The goal isn't that you agree with me. I'm not some infallible authority. I study and prep a lot, and I read a lot of smart people, and I try to figure out as a disciple myself what is the heart of the text and then how that can be embodied, and then I get to share that with you. It's the best, really, job in the world. And so um, you don't have to agree with where I'm going with this, but um, again, I think it's been misunderstood, and I'll give some examples of that as we go. All right, so let's go to verse 27 first. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Now, is there a command anywhere from the Old Testament that says this? Yeah, one of the big 10, wouldn't you agree? Let's show it to you. There it is. (laughs) Bam, yeah, yeah, it's amazing just how all that fits together. Now, a word about adultery. Adultery for us is infidelity on either spouse. Okay, adultery was understood differently in the first century not shockingly very much in favor of the man Right adultery was was only the physical touching of body parts. That was only adultery. Nothing else was considered adultery It was just when body parts touch secondly adultery there was a big double standard around adultery namely that men had a great deal more permission to be sexually permissive than women did in fact there's a test uh, in Numbers chapter 5, that's really weird, that was only given to women who were accused of infidelity, never given to men. Men could have sex with divorcees, um, prostitutes, women who were divorced, or I think I already said that, women who were unmarried, who were unengaged, um, and for women, though, the fidelity was absolutely unconditional. And all the ladies said, yeah, that sounds about right. Right? Not right in good, but right in, yep, that's kind of how the way the world has worked up until this point. And so, the big double standard is what Jesus is going to address when in the next verse he says, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, we're going to take some time on this one. This is where it gets a little misunderstood. The word lustfully is a word, Jesus uses a Greek word here, that is used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint, that translates the verse, you shall not covet. So the word lust here isn't the word that, because we we think lust is exclusively, has uh, sexual connotations. Coveting is much broader than that. So the word that Jesus uses is actually a callback to another one of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's what? Or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, coveting, and this is so important, you guys, so please dial in for just a few minutes. Jesus is not ruling out normal sexual desire. He never, ever, nor does God ever condemn sexual desire, ever. Instead, coveting is an action word. It's not a desire word. It's that when you desire something that's forbidden to you, and you begin to turn your heart towards action, that's what's being condemned. That's what it is to look upon someone covetously, to use kind of the old King James. right? To covet isn't just to want. I want a jacuzzi. I want a full head of hair. Um, among other things. And, and, and that is not what it is at all being condemned. What's being condemned is the reorientation of heart towards a step, towards action, um, as we begin to pursue what it is that we are desiring. Makes sense so far? This is really, really important. This verse has been used to shame normal sexual desire, and that's something the Bible never does. All right? Go ahead, put that back up, that Exodus passage, Joe. Notice... What, what else is listed besides my neighbor's wife? A donkey? Yes. An ox? Right? Servants? Or, or notice, anything that what? So coveting in the Old Testament was a theft against the man. Because you would be plundering the man's property. All that list, servants, donkeys, wife, all of that was considered property. So, coveting wasn't ruled out because it was a sin against the woman. It was ruled out because it was a sin against the property of another man. Are you with me on this? And ladies, how do you feel about that? Yeah. (laughs) We had a whoop, and now we have, and it's perfect. I need you to up here like the, the two Muppets, you know, that are just kind of up commenting on the nonsense below. I don't know. Anyway, um, lust, the word for covet here, doesn't, it's not even an exclusively negative word. It, it just means to desire exceedingly. It's so that you begin to act on that desire. Like Jesus will use this word other places, like when he says, I w- I've greatly wanted to eat this last supper with you, that's the word we would translate last. So in English, it's taken on an exclusively sexual term um, or meaning, but the the coveting idea is way bigger than that. Make sense so far? Okay, I'm going to keep bugging you because there were loads of questions last service, all right? So feel free if something's not super clear. Now, where are we? Let's go back. Yeah, let's go back to... uh, to 20, or to, uh, let's see, 27, 28, there you go. Thank you, Joe, you knew. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, what Jesus is not saying is that adultery of the heart and real adultery are the same thing. Can we agree that that's not the case? What he's doing, and this is so important, is he's using light and heavy commands, and he's illustrating the insufficiency Of the Pharisees understanding of righteousness it's not enough in the way that you treat people simply not to murder them the kingdom righteousness is dealing with your anger and contempt it's not enough in the kingdom righteousness just to not commit adultery kingdom righteousness deals with your heart and the inclination to act upon desire all right So, here Jesus is dealing with the motive of looking. It's not just looking to look or looking to notice, but it's looking to act upon that. Now then Jesus engages, just to underscore how important dealing with this issue is, he engages in some nice hyperbole, very common for the rabbis of his time. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna, which was a valley outside of Jerusalem. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into Gehenna. Now, some in church history have taken this very seriously, and they've cut off different body parts. But let me ask you, suppose we cut off our hands. Does that solve the problem of disordered desire? No, because you can be handless and still covet. What about eyes? We could poke eyes out, and you could be eyeless and still covet. Covet. So Jesus obviously is not making the point, hey, this is a body part issue, because if it were a body part issue, he obviously leaves one very important body part out for the men he's addressing, would you agree? <laughs> and so, hence PG-13. Now, <laughs> so what Jesus is doing is he's underscoring the need to take this seriously. In fact, there are passages all over from ancient rabbis that use this kind of exaggeration. Here's an example. This is from um, I think the Talmud. When when three eat at one table, when three people eat at one table, and words of Torah are not spoken there, it is as if they ate at the altars of the dead. That's not true technically, but what are they saying? Well, when you eat when three eat at one table and bring up the words of Torah, it's as if they ate from the table of God. Blessed be He. In other words, the point that the 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 Rabbi is making is hey, it's super important that Torah is always on your lips, even at mealtime, and especially at mealtime. But look how he uses exaggeration to make that point the same thing that Jesus is doing here. Makes sense so far. All right, any questions so far? Justy Bears got it. All right, giddy up now. That that is kind of the exegesis of the text, all right, what the words mean in context. And now I want to talk about what they imply for us thousands of years later, all right? First, point number one, and you may have questions about these next three. Point number one is assume, it's assumed here, but it's assumed that normal sexual desire is a good thing, right? The rabbis had field days with the fact that the first command of the 613, 13 of the Torah was from Genesis. God blessed them and and said to them what? Yeah, how do you do that? Yes, and does it turn out to be fun? Oh, look at you all pull back. Yes! I mean he could have had his planting a garden or a flock of storks show up with babies but instead he created this all this full-body unbelievable mind-blowing experience to be united to another image bearer and to obey the command to fill the earth every part of sexual desire Right? From arousal to to fantasy to the desire for release. All of that is good and is intended to be a gift even though we universally experience it as a curse. The Bible does not start with a thou shalt not, even remotely. We were sexual before we were ever sinful. And for far too long, the church has done great and irreparable harm by starting with the thou shalt nots, and they don't even get those right. I mean, when I was my daughter's age, now a little younger, I was like 12 or 13, I had this guy sit me down in youth group, I didn't even know him. And he handed me a pamphlet called the biological hand grenade ladder. So it was a ladder that had rungs, and on the bottom rung was holding hands, And then you went to kissing, and then you went to French kissing, which I didn't know what that was. And then you went to petting, which I had no freaking idea what that was. And then heavy petting, and then intercourse. And the idea was that the further you went up the ladder, the more explosive the consequences. And what was the message? This is dirty, naughty, bad. Save it for the one you love. Right? I mean, that's in essence the message, right? Stay away. And that's all I ever heard. The church never talked about it. The problem with that is it doesn't do justice to the biblical teaching on sexuality. That it starts with it being a great gift and a delight. There's an entire book of the Bible given to erotic love poetry that would be read at weddings. Which I do not think is a metaphor for how Jesus loves us, by the way. Song of songs. Someday, we'll, yeah. Anyway. Now, the hangover... To this teaching that desire is bad has been either one of two things a it's either been and I've talked to married couples who were told it's dirty naughty bad dirty naughty bad they get married and they somehow can't flip the switch that now it's just okay because I said some words and I've also met people who heard this and went that is the most burdensome thing I've ever heard and I refuse to live that way and so they just walk away from the church altogether Some of us carry massive guilt and shame hangovers for sexual thoughts and feelings that the Bible does not condemn. Now, I know we could say more here, but the biggest point that is assumed in Jesus' teaching about lust is that sexual desire is normal. It's okay, it's human. The second point that is implied in Jesus' teaching, is that the coveting, the the acting on desire at times can be super dangerous. And we all know this, right? That that acting upon desire can get us into trouble because desire is never satisfied. It always wants more. Paul talks about this in Ephesians. It's the most powerful picture I've ever read about what kind of that coveting lust sort of does to us. He's speaking of Gentiles, and so that's us even though we're disciples of Jesus. But he was talking about them back then. He said, they're darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. Now buried behind all of these weird Bible words is a process, a progress, that actually takes place for those of us who've struggled with food, who've struggled with pornography, who've struggled with alcohol or drugs. We know exactly this process. So let's look at the individual words here that he uses, because it paints a very specific picture. Having lost sensitivity means it's the condition of being void or past feeling. Like, if you, if you, if you give in to disordered desire, the thing that you used to enjoy, you cease enjoying. Right? So, so uh, for people who drink uh, excessively and are, are uh, struggling with alcoholism, all of a sudden it goes from enjoying alcohol to using alcohol to do something else. And you're not, even, you're not even enjoying the drinks that you're drinking or for food, right? You go from enjoying food to using food. And it takes, like it never fills you up. There's this great image in C.S. Lewis's Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe where there's a a young kid, Edmund, who enters into this magical land of Narnia. He encounters a white witch who lies to him and says, uh, because he's hungry and he asks for something to eat, and so she bewitches something called Turkish delight, which I didn't know was a form of candy. So that the more he eats, the hungrier he gets. The more he eats, the less desirable healthy food becomes. And it's the picture of someone who's indulging, but getting lonelier and more empty the more they indulge. Now, some of us know exactly what that feels like. And where that leads next is to something called sensuality, the absence of restraint, that our desires now run our lives. There are no boundaries, because, as we know, the law of diminishing returns, it takes more to satisfy. So, you know, for a lot of us, Struggles with pornography started with something that was relatively mild, but they don't stop there unless they're specifically warred against. It requires more and more and more. And then sensuality leads to something Paul calls greed. We associate greed with money. The greed is disordered desire. It's the insatiable need for more. I'm willing to compromise relationships, and family, and things that are important to me for the sake of fulfillment in this desire. So, does the Bible give a big yes to sex and sexuality? Absolutely! Yes! Fill the earth, and it's fun! Not every command is as fun, would you agree? But there's also a warning because it's so powerful. All right, are you with me on this point so far? Any questions? Awesome. It's like, it's like my junior high, how far is it, too far meetings I used to have as a youth pastor. All right, point number three: goodness of sexual desire and the damage that some forms of purity culture have done. Secondly, when it comes to disordered desire and the coveting, the action. There, is, there are warnings against it, of course, but those are wisdom warnings. You know, when, when it says in Romans, when God gives us over, this is that process, like we're given over. He just lets us go on our way. And for many of us, we've experienced that reality. But there's a third thing that Jesus is doing here that to me is more profound than the other two. And what he's doing is he is removing the double standard. Why is it that in a crowd made up of men and women, Jesus only addresses men? Is it because only men struggle with lust and un, uh, you know, disordered desire? No, Jesus is smart. He understands that's a female issue too. But has there been in the history of humanity only one gender that's weaponized sexuality to uh, oppress and abuse and manipulate? Yeah, primarily. And so Jesus doesn't warn his disciples against women. He warns men against themselves. And this was revolutionary in the first century. Let me show you some examples of common teaching back then. All right? Rabbi Jose, who was not pronounced that way. I'm just putting a little Espanol on it. um, (laughs) He very famously tells a story in the Babylonian Talmud of the tendency to blame women for the sins of men he uh, was said to have had a beautiful daughter and once and one day he caught a man boring a hole drilling a hole in his fence to catch a glimpse of the beautiful daughter when the rabbi challenged the intruder the intruder answered master if i'm not worthy enough to marry her may i not at least be worthy to catch a glimpse of her and the rabbi then turned to his daughter and said, You are a source of trouble to mankind. Return to the dust so that men may not sin because of you. Yeah, and there's more. Tortillian, he was a Christian, early Christian church father. He wrote a book called On the Apparel of Women. Okay, so ladies, you gonna pick that one up? <laughs> hey, hey dudes, I'm wondering what you think I should be wearing. Uh, Tertullian insisted that even natural beauty ought to be obliterated by concealment and neglect. So if you're beautiful, you should hide it and make sure no one notices, since it is dangerous to those who look upon it. Right, who's who's at fault there? The woman. Next. Sirach, one of the extra-canonical books, with a married woman, die not... Do not recline, uh, recline not at a table to drink by her side, lest your heart be drawn to her, and you go down in blood to the grave. Right? That was the first iteration of the very famous Billy Graham rule, right? Next. Talk not much with women. So how are they ever supposed to learn? Grow. Next. It is taught no man should ever walk on a road beside a woman, excuse me, behind a woman even if she is his own wife. If she's in front of him on a bridge, stay on the other side until she crosses, and whoever crosses a river behind a woman has no share in the life to come. Now, really kind of crazy, correct? But doesn't this still happen today? Particularly when the word modesty, as Paul uses it, has nothing to do with how much you're wearing, but everything to do with whether or not you're shaming poor people by flaunting your wealth. So Jesus comes, and he's dealing with adultery, right? The heavy command, do not commit adultery. And for the Pharisees, that just meant body parts, and there was a huge double standard. It was the woman's issue. Jesus comes in and says, no, 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 my kingdom will be safe for women because it is the dudes who have to deal with the lust and the desire to covet in their own hearts. And in so doing, he stands against the incredible tide of double standard up, and up until that point in his world. He didn't warn his disciples against women. He warned his disciples against themselves. So Jesus is, is doing such work and so much revolution here. We're going to see this next week with divorce. He's going to revolutionize the thinking on divorce so that it protects women. He's going to keep doing this in his kingdom, predominantly for Jesus. Women must be safe. And for far too long, the church has been complicit in, in great evil towards them. And so this morning... I wanted to do something that may be a bit uncomfortable for us, as if this wasn't already. But I wanted to gather the men around the edges of the room. And I wanted to have all of our sisters kind of stay seated here in the middle. And I want to invite us gentlemen to pray over the women in the center. Now not all of you are huge fans of prayer. And or may not you know be totally not ever want to do this out loud, so we're going to do it in silence. But I'd like to ask, if you would, if you're um, a guy, would you stand up and go to the edges of the room, just around the whole room? Ladies, your job is to sit there, comment on your husband's wardrobe. <laughs> Gentlemen, what we're doing is a performance, uh, an, an embodied practice about what this teaches us. And for some of us, our prayer time, Tim and I were talking about this, our prayer time is really envisioning new ways of relating to you as sisters. For some of us, it's repentance as we pray over you and the recognition that we've added and been complicit in a culture that does this. We recognize that for some of you women, you've been incredibly hurt by men, by how the church has taught this topic. You've been shamed and blamed for things that are not yours at all to carry. And there is a big hangover. And that's why we have so little authority to speak on the current issues of our day. Our house is just rotten. And so, ladies, I just ask that you would close your eyes and that you would receive this. And gentlemen, I want to give you maybe 30 seconds just to play, pray a blessing over this community. To pray that our sisters, we'd have no idea the war that's waged against their worth, dignity, and value on the basis of how they look. So would you pray and bless them with worth and honor and dignity? Would you pray that this would be a a community where women are safe from not being objectified? Where they're seen fully and absolutely as image bearers and partners. They're elevated to all places in our community and their wisdom is desperately, desperately needed. And gentlemen, would you join me in just praying for ourselves? Culture, church, and I have been complicit and I've failed in so many, many ways. Would you join me in praying for renewal of our hearts? and That new creation dynamics would grab hold so we live with our sisters differently. So friends, we're just gonna give you a few moments to pray and then I'll close this, okay? Go ahead. Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit we agree Father that you are wise and gracious and that you desire your kingdom and your kingdom communities to be a place where women are safe and we acknowledge on behalf of many that that's not been the case and much harm has been done And Father, we stand as a small act of repentance and pray blessing over the daughters you've gathered in this room. Father, I pray that they might know and that we would be witnesses of their dignity and worth. That we would bear witness to the Imago Dei, the image of God within them. And God, I pray for the women in our midst for whom this is super, super painful and there's been much hurt. Father, would you draw near to the brokenhearted? Father, would you come breathing words of life and grace? Father, we're not afraid of you. So we invite you to come and draw near to us. Father, would you send your spirit to do what we cannot do, to renew, to birth hope, to grant forgiveness. None of these things we pray lightly, but we ask you, Father, that you would do what we cannot. that you would help us to have a vision for what it looks like to walk in repentance so that this community would be safe for everybody. We bless you, Jesus. We thank you that you care so, so deeply about our sisters. Make that known to them, we pray. Amen. Amen. Gentlemen, go ahead and grab a seat. We're gonna do what we normally do at this point. We're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper together. That's what we do. We're gonna write prayer requests. Invite God into things that are troubling us. But mostly we just want to sit in the beauty of Lord of the Lord Jesus and the kind of community he's dreamt of. And so to that end, Father, I pray that you would receive us now. Lord, we recognize it is but by grace that we can call upon your name so readily. And so, God, we give you this time as we eat and share the table together, as we carry one another's burdens, as we just sit and reflect. We pray you'd guide us in the name of Jesus. Amen.